0: Hi, everyone. This is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Oliver Walker-Jones, head of communications at Lilium. Lilium is a Germany-based startup developing the world's first all-electric jet. And with more than $375 million in funding, this is one of the most fascinating innovations in transportation I've seen recently. And in the episode, Oliver and I will discuss how he landed the head of communications role at a company like Lilium, what this function looks like at a company that hasn't released a product to the market yet, what it's like building the future of transportation, how exactly the experience is going to work, and the one big idea rotting in Oliver's idea graveyard. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Oliver Walker-Jones head of communications at Lilium. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me along.
1: It's exciting to be here.
0: Hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry to keep you at 6pm uh, on a Friday out in Munich, Germany. So I, I really do appreciate it. Let's start with just the basics. What is Lilium?
1: Hey, well, that's a that's the million dollar question, right? Lilium <laughs> is uh, a business, a startup, and we are designing A new sort of aircraft, an aircraft you probably haven't seen before. It has five seats. It has wings, but it's electric powered. So unlike most aircraft today, which rely on kind of jet gas or kerosene, um, it's fully electric. It takes off and lands vertically. So it's a bit like a helicopter in that respect. But then it travels forwards like an aircraft using the wings that it has. It takes five people up to 300 kilometers. Well, that's 186 miles. And it does that in an hour on a single charge. So it's an aircraft. Some people think of the Jetsons when they see it. Some people think of the fifth element. It's a little bit different from that. And obviously it's designed with real kind of aerospace grade safety. You know, it's going to be certified to the same safety levels as today's commercial aircraft. But in the end, what is it designed to do? It's designed to revolutionize regional travel.
0: Wow. how this manifests in the real world? Do you envision your average Jill and Joe owning these? <laughs> Are these operators like a JetBlue and American Airlines having a fleet of these? How how do you envision this manifesting in real life?
1: Yeah, so this is this is probably where we let most people down, right? Because I think people watch popular culture and they, they see these things landing in their garden and maybe you drive it out of your garage and you take off and you fly to school or the supermarket or, you know, it's not going to be like that, right? What we envision is having an aircraft that will allow you to travel up to 300 kilometers. So instead of kind of hopping across one city from one side to the other, it's unlikely you're ever really going to do that journey. Instead, what you're going to be doing is going from the city you're in today to one that's up to 300 kilometers away so that might be boston to new york or it might be munich to zurich or london to manchester in the uk and and really then that means what you're going to do is rather than owning one, you're going to fly in one a bit like you do today on a commercial airline, you know, you'll know, you go to a vertiport, that's what we're calling the, the landing pads, you'll check in, it won't be like going on a normal aircraft, because you're not going to be there for two hours, probably you'll be there for 10 minutes. But you'll check in, you'll get on the aircraft in the city centre somewhere, and we'll fly you to another downtown vertiport in another city. And so You won't ever need to own it. You'll book it through an app. But what you'll get is this connection from city center to city center with no carbon footprint. And you'll be doing it uh, way faster than you would if you were, for example, in an Uber.
0: Man, this is (laughs) insane. If anyone goes to Lilium's website, you can see a really cool timeline of major milestones across the journey. And the really courageous part of Lilium's journey here, you can see a lot of this commercialization and the manifestation in real life doesn't happen for another couple years. So mm-hmm. when you think about the Eureka moment and making the bet to go after this, it's just crazy to think about for the next 10 years, you have to build the future before it becomes a real thing. And to your credit, and this is where I really find the most fascination when I talk to people like yourself is how do people end up in ships and journeys like Lilliam's? And I'm looking at your LinkedIn. <laughs> and the 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 journey for you from it look, the Conservative Party in politics and then making mm-hmm. its way into a technology company that's building the future. It's just a really interesting journey. So help us connect the dots. Sure. How did you end up at Lillium? So for me,
1: I, I've always been like so many people, what you might call an geek or an aviation geek, right? I love flying. I love everything to do with travel. And when I first came out of university, actually, I, I applied for a job um, with an airline and I, I didn't get the job. And so I took a different path. Uh, but slowly but surely, I worked my way back and I ended up working at Rolls-Royce, um, which is the UK-based company, not the car company, sadly, but the one that develops uh, jet engines, so powers you when you go on your holiday across the Atlantic. And from there, I had a phone call from uh, this startup in Germany saying, hey, you know, you work in the aerospace industry, you do communications, you know, do you fancy coming and working here? And um, my answer was kind of, I'm not really sure. This sounds a little bit crazy. But then when you dig into it, what you see is a company that has a really strong mission, it has a clear societal purpose. It has a bit of a moonshot technology, and it has a really amazing founders team. And many, many people in my position have been through the same journey, right? So we're now 500 people at Lilium, so we still call ourselves a startup, but really we're probably something else, and maybe some people say scale up. But there are 500 people or so who have been through the same journey. We have people from Airbus, from Boeing, from Tesla, from SpaceX, from Embraer, all the kind of big technology companies out there who've all had that same kind of moment where they look at what this technology could do and they want to be part of it because it's only really once in a generation that you introduce a new form of transport. If you think about this, you know this, this doesn't really exist. It's not a helicopter. It's not a plane. It's not a car. It's something kind of new. And the only other people that are doing something like that, I guess, maybe maybe some of the space tourism companies that have a passenger spaceship or Hyperloop, right? the wanna dig a tunnel through the ground and send you in a vacuum tunnel, you know, that's kind of in the same ballpark, maybe we we like to think we're a little bit more realistic. And then I guess this kind of the 10 year notion is really interesting. So, you know, our founders, we have four founders, they're all 35, I think now, they came straight out of university, two of them gave up doing their doctorates just to come and start the company, there were four of them. And they said, just like you said, you know, for the next 10 years, we're just going to do this one thing and we think we can do it. They've been doing it for five years now. So, uh, you know, we were founded five years ago and we're still a good four years from market entry. So you have to have a lot of belief. In reality, you also have to have a lot of backing and cash. Um, But, you know, we're making good progress.
0: So I want to understand your role because Mm -hmm. for the layman running the communications function at a company that has already entered the market is something that feels intuitive you talk mm-hmm. about the product new announcements things of that nature but when you talk about a product that has yet to enter the market i think the the function of communications is really interesting so mm-hmm. my question for you is what exactly is the function and the success metric of running the communications department at Lilium today?
1: (laughs) So it's kind of two things, right? And these are really important and they're they're not really connected. The first is, you know, we, we are in a competitive environment. So Lilium is one of maybe 150 companies that are trying to do this at the moment. We have an individual technology and we think we have maturity and capability beyond almost all of the other startups in our field. But that's no good unless you, unless you make that point to the world, right? We need to attract investment. We need to attract employees to come and work with us. And we need the world to be excited. So on the one hand, I get this really exciting job, which is to tell the world all about this cool technology is going to change your lives. And that's a really positive conversation. But we also need to differentiate ourselves from the rest of the market. So the first metric of success is setting Lilium apart as a leader in our field. Now, my colleagues do most of that for me because they make this amazing aircraft. It looks beautiful. It flies really nicely. But still, you kind of have to go on that journey of telling the story. So that's kind of point one. But then point two, which is kind of unrelated in many ways, is dealing with the rest of the world. Maybe people who don't want to ever fly with you, but everybody has a voice in public acceptance. So you know it's all well and good if you design this amazing technology, but the world has to want it and the world has to accept it. Want is easy to drive because there will always be early adopters who want to get in this beautiful aircraft and do something crazy that no one's ever done before. But the people who just have to accept it, that's harder because what we're saying is we want to fly something that you don't really understand yet in your city, over your house. We want it to land at a vertiport a kilometer away from your house. And then we want to do that 24 hours a day and, and we're going to change the way you travel. And, and for a lot of people, that's realistically a challenge because they, they wonder how safe it is how noisy it is, how expensive it's going to be. And so making sure that we get that conversation right, that we lead the world to a better understanding that this will be quiet, that it will be safe, and that it will be affordable. That's the second half of the job. And, and if you don't get that right, there's no point developing the technology.
0: Absolutely. I, I, you can think about all of the kind of next generation frontier products that, in technical speak, are fascinating, but... Mm-hmm if you can't bridge the divide, people won't actually use the product. You look at yeah now we're starting to see some adoption VR products, but when Oculus was acquired, <laughs> uh, everyone said, this is absurd. You know, <laughs> I, I have no interest in buying this bulky headset and we saw it with Magic Leap. And I, I think to your point, making sure to almost preemptively talk about some of the, those facets that will be top of mind when this when this is introduced is super yeah. important. Another, I think, f- yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, just let me just pick up on that for a second. So I think the, if you look at an Apple iPhone, right, I'm mean, like wonderful product and you can market it to me if you want, but if I don't buy it, it doesn't affect me, right? If I decide I don't mm-hmm. like Apple products and I don't want one, then it does never harm me. If I don't have one, I don't care whether they exist. You know, my partner mm-hmm. can have one. That's fine. But with this technology, it matters even if you're not a user because you have an opinion on it because it flies over your house because it potentially affects the world you live in. It has to also at least be accepted by people that aren't going to use it. And that's a hard challenge.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. (laughs) I was reading, so one of the comments Mm -hmm. that you you made on uh, another LinkedIn post, it was like a research report about a poll, about public's perception or interest in electric air taxis. And I think that to your credit, the, the, the points that you brought up were thoughtful. And I, I'm actually aligned with, with you. But how, in your opinion, is the best way to communicate what the future of Lilium means hmm. for non-users? And how do you get them to say, you know what, this is a future that I want to support, even if i don't become a rider in that first mile.
1: Yeah. So i think the the answer is really kind of digging in the pain points and the opportunities, right? So mm-hmm. the reasons that people may be turned off by this, it's typically misunderstandings, but reasonable ones, right? So everything i've described to you so far, and, you know, listeners will think, "Oh, it takes off vertically, then it goes forwards, it lands in city centers." You're like, "That's a helicopter," right? And, and broadly, it kind of is, but there are a couple of really key differences. The first is noise. So you know, we're going to between, be between six and seven times quieter than a helicopter when it takes off. And that matters because you know, helicopters are really, really noisy. Um, and this will be quiet enough to blend into an urban environment. So if we can get people to understand first that the aircraft's not going to have a negative impact on their community. That's good. That's kind of point one. Point two is about safety. You know, people see small aircraft and they think not as safe as big aircraft. And that's not like the aircraft I go on holiday on. Well, actually, it's going to be certified to the same standard. So there's all sorts of statistics that you can come on here. But that basically, uh, the one that really matters is the, the incidence of catastrophic failure. We don't like to say those words, but you have a you know an allowance per flight hour. And it's one times 10 to the minus nine, basically like one in one with lots of zeros behind it. And the important point here is that we will be certifying the aircraft to the same standard as those aircraft that you go and get in today. So the incidence of issues will be the same. So again, it really is the safest form of travel. And again, that's Mm -hmm. kind of point two. We can tick that. Point three, and this is where it starts to get interesting, is people will still look at it and think, well, that's nice, but it's not for me. And we really need to get people to understand this is something that will be accessible. It'll be accessible because it will be at a price point that people will be able to afford. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to take a day trip and just say a business trip from London to Manchester or Boston to New York or Munich to Salzburg, this will be a reasonable price for you to get on. It's not like a helicopter, but I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. I don't fly in helicopters regularly, if ever. Um, but, but this would be something that would be comparable probably to like a peak fare on a train or a first class mm-hmm. fare in some places, depends where you're going. But we want it to be affordable. So you actually you should be considering this as a form of transport and the kind of the kicker to all of that is it's environmentally friendly because you you aren't emitting any emissions when you're flying and instead of requiring a massive great highway or a road or a railway to be run through the countryside in order for you to make that journey you can just go from point to point all you need is a small little vertical at each end so we Mm -hmm. can connect lots of places that haven't been connected before so when you go to those people, you're like, okay, first, let me make sure that you're not offended by it. And second, just let me kind of try and explain to you why this is much more of a transport option than you think of it. That's the answer.
0: Out of curiosity, in, in your role as the head of communications, do you have any type of interaction or interface with the recruiting function? As in, yeah. when you think about messaging, to yeah. talented people, is that also part of the communications umbrella?
1: Yeah, I mean that that really has to be um, front and center when you're a startup that's growing, right? So we've gone when I joined in December 2018. So that's say basically a year and a half ago now. We were 100 and maybe 110 or 120 people, mm-hmm. and today we're 500. So yeah, you know, we've we've added 400 people give or take in 18 months and when they're not just any old people, you know, these are really some of the best minds in the sector. And so getting the communications right for those people has been critical. you know, I think if I pick three audiences, we're like, well, investors really matter to us. Employees matter to us and government officials, people who change regulations matter. So employees, absolutely potential Lillians, as we call them, Mm -hmm. are, are front and center of our mind when we present what the business is, how we do it. And what we want to get across, by the way, is that we're a really mature company, you know, an aerospace company that isn't just a startup anymore. That really can deliver something. That can do this really, really hard task, and can do it with a team of people who aren't just, you know, we're not just young enthusiastic people. There's some real expertise here within the team. We have people who spent their whole careers at Airbus and Boeing and Tesla and NASA, working with us now.
0: Oliver, can I pitch you an idea?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: Okay, so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about at In Good Hands as a media company Mm -hmm. is once you get to a certain threshold in community size, right? We have thousands and thousands of people who tune in every week Mm -hmm. and the unifying element or this common denominator, at least my assumption is, is that people are interested in a world that will be better than it is today, right? We hear all this doom and gloom. Uh, when it comes to climate. So highlighting the solutions to some of these grand problems and the companies that are helping manifest and build those products is is exhilarating. And yeah. as I think about products that align with the community and would bring value to people, something that I've been thinking a lot about is the job board, right? Job board, <laughs> from a pure business perspective is really interesting. It's super high margin. It's pretty self-sustaining once you are able to drive enough traffic to the site. The margins on posts are good. And when I think about how people search for opportunities today, maybe you go to Indeed, you go to LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. maybe you search by job function. I want to work in advertising in this location. Maybe you have a particular company in mind. But what I'm hearing more and more, particularly with Gen Z that's starting to graduate into working age, they want to work at companies that uh, are working on some important problem. But when it comes down to it, people want to work on important problems. We spend most of our, our lives working. So the idea here is to have a job board that, Includes opportunities that is exclusively opportunities about jobs at companies taking on climate in some meaningful way. It could be an energy, transportation, food waste. And the thinking there is like, there is no curated list of these opportunities that self-select based on this criteria i don't if i want to work on an important Mm. problem where do i go i can't go to indeed and say climate jobs if you even do that today nothing appears so i'm dumbing down the it's still a hard thing to pull off but what is your what is your bullish bearish take on that so i really like it i mean
1: i think it's a it's a really cool idea and I, i think you're right to identify that it's uh it's a potential generational shift, right? I think people are starting to look less at jobs that match their expertise, but ones that really match their values or their ethical desire to do something a little bit different. And that's really cool. I mean, inevitably, you know, we've also got to appeal to hardcore engineers who have worked 40 years and, and don't think twice about this kind of stuff. But we really want to get other people in. And I would love to see something like that develop. And Mm -hmm. I can think, you know, straight away off the top of my head, like 10 different companies that would feature on there. Of course, then there's a challenge of like, how do you choose who features on there? Because some Mm -hmm. companies see, you know, I I can think of plenty of companies that I've seen post about all of their great values. And really you think, yeah, it's nice, but I know you're you're just making a lot of noise because behind it, the business isn't really doing something great. And so the -hmm. selection criteria is going to be hard. I I mean, I, I really like some of the qualifications that companies, Um, have now you know there are independent ways to prove that you're a company that's committed to doing something a little bit different now so maybe it's like it's a job board for all those companies that have this one certification or qualification Mm -hmm. like the one that springs to mind is the b core so you know these companies that have have been through a process that's independent that says we really are doing something that's good for the future world and maybe it's that it's like the b core jobs board we should pitch it to those Mm -hmm. guys (laughs)
0: agreed and i think as stepping into the employer shoes i think that the trickiest thing with the job board is how do you increase the ratio of signal to noise like that'll be the hardest thing if you have yeah these amazing companies but the the inbound the canada inbound is really high with low signal you know so
1: yeah anyways um, we have that problem too hey
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've been sifting on that one all right, so to to segue slightly, I want to dig into a little a cu- couple things that are about the industry at large, and we, yeah. we talked about a few of them when we kicked off. But I am fascinated in transportation two the next wave of companies that will change the way we move, but also have some of these ethical values baked into the business model, right? Zero mm. carbon emissions or zero mm. net emissions. Which are the companies, maybe directly competitive or, or not competitive, but which in your mind are the most kind of ambitious, courageous, interesting companies that have a chance at ushering in this new wave of transportation that does check the boxes on price, on, on sustainability? You mentioned Hyperloop, but are there any that come to mind that you're just really excited about?
1: Yeah, I mean... I- if I'm honest, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sad answer to this one, but I uh, there are two parts to it for me. The first is uh-huh. the biggest impact is going to be in the car industry, right? Pretty much everybody has a car, everyone travels by uh-huh. car, people love to do that, and so for me, I'm like you know, it's, it's no surprise. I think you know we think Tesla is a great company. What they're doing to drive, you no know, matter what you think of the product, they've driven. A change in the rest of the industry so they have all the other car companies scrambling after them now and they've done that by being bold and by being brave but there are other companies that are falling behind them and for me i think probably the most exciting company is rivian and so they're developing an electric truck they're they're not far behind tesla with what they're doing there are a couple of Mm -hmm. other smaller companies that are also working on electric vehicles that i like There's, there's one really cute um car startup here in munich actually that are trying to develop a solar-powered car, which is kind of cool. I don't know if they're going to be successful, but it, again, you know, it's kind of <laughs> cool. And then you have Volto, the guys that work on the trucks. And, and that's kind of interesting because they're, of course, exploring the side of the industry that is less sexy because it's not consumer so much, but a huge number of the road miles are done with freight uh, and not with passenger transport. So for me, those guys are making the biggest difference because they are tackling the problem right at its source. You know, we've and then I, then I look at like, well yeah aviation is really where my passion is so the argument with aerospace is always of course how come it's so slow you know the aircraft get more and more efficient year by year but you know we we all all of us go you know i i believe in a low carbon footprint i like to save energy blah 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 and i still get on an airplane and fly to the u.s for example my vacation and and then i've kind of undone a lot of the good that i did so it's mm-hmm. like what do we do about that we will solve flights under 300 kilometers but how do you solve the transatlantic thing how do you do the longer Mm -hmm. flights and there are companies working in that field and i think that has a potential to be really big as well so it starts simple it starts with sustainable jet fuel so you know you take the fuel you've got in the moment and you swap it out for something that's um, a little bit more sustainable maybe brings in plant-based stuff which comes with all sorts of questions too and Mm -hmm. then you move into electric hybrid or hybrid electric power so there are companies like rolls royce where i used to work Siemens did some work in this as well, where they're looking at how you actually modify existing you know, big aircraft so that they're using electric power for some of the journey. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that not everything has to be moonshot, right? A lot of it can be gradual change as well. Mm-hmm. So if you can take a, you know, a Boeing 787 Dreamliner or an Airbus A350, you know, these big aircraft, and you can start to bring in hybrid technology. So, you know, when they're at cruising height, they're using electric power. Maybe, you know, maybe that's a small step, but it's, it has a big impact.
0: Mm hmm. It, it just it just came to me. You know, we were talking before about how to win over people as you introduce this new behavior paradigm to regional travel. Yeah. And it didn't jump at me then. But now I think about we had I, I brought this up on a couple episodes. We had the founder of Sheets and Giggles on. They create a <laughs> a sustainable bedding sheet and comforter. Yeah, but I know. An interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, they, they never lead with that they always lead with like the most breathable, the most comfortable, cheaper, right? <laughs> they 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 are cognizant that the average person, while he or she may care about sustainability, doesn't typically make purchasing decisions in that way. And when I think about mm. regional travel, I live in New York City, but my home is Worcester, right? Right outside of Boston, Mass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a flight, is like 40 minutes. But when I think about how long it takes to get to JFK, waiting in security, getting there, I never consider it. Right. I never consider it. It ends up being a four and a half, five hour flight. And I think the big win, the potential opportunity for Lilium is what you brought up before, which is instead of waiting in security for two hours, <laughs> yeah. wait for 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And, and get on your way. And I think that is something that no matter who you are, I think that humans are fundamentally impatient. And there's no way that anyone can deny that that will be a massive win Yeah. for everyone. And, and,
1: yeah. And of course, what we're doing is we're taking you from downtown New York to downtown your city. Right. So you don't even have to go into Boston and out again. Right. You can just go straight to where you live instead. And so you actually cut out the need for the in-between transports. Let's say you took an Uber, you know, it's Mm -hmm. you flew there and then you took an Uber or you took an Uber out to JFK. We're also taking that traffic off the road potentially. Mm -hmm. So it has some potential. (laughs) That's why I'm here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oliver, I have two more questions before we part ways. One more thing is I want to get your perspective on getting the first major publication to speak about you getting press to talk about what you're working on. If you were to give advice to a founder working on their company, they're building it, they're in that first mile, trying to get that first win, mm. it's this two part. How much should kind of working with the media and prioritizing press be part of that initial kind of prioritization stack? And if it is high on the totem pole, like. How do you actually crack the code? How do you get someone to talk about you when you're just this puny little David in a world of Goliaths?
1: Wow. Okay, so two parts to this question, I guess. The first is, do you want to be public. And you don't have to, that's not a given, right? So if mm-hmm. I take Lillium and one of our bigger competitors, and we're probably at the same point in our maturity, we're the same kind of size company, we're, we're funded roughly the same, we're probably both leaders in our segment. But oddly, we have completely different media approaches, right? One is basically completely secret. And one is really quite open and transparent. And it's uh, what we say in England, at least is horses for courses, right? You have to choose the path that's mm-hmm. most suited to you. And, you know, one of the reasons that we do what we do is because we're in Europe, right? And you don't get many deep tech, long lead time engineering companies in Europe. And so we have to play a different game. We have to raise our profile. We have to be present and, and kind of visible in the U.S. and around the world. And we have to shout a little bit louder than perhaps we might have done if we would founded in Silicon Valley. So there's a reason why we do what we do and the way that we do it. And equally, you know, attracting amazing talent. Out of frequently out of the U.S., but also around the world. So That's another reason we do it. But um, you have to make that decision when the right time is for you to go to market. And and we're actually kind of weird like that because you know not many companies would come out um, publicly before they have a product, not at least five years before they have a product. And that comes with risk as well as opportunity. Um, so make that decision wisely. Think about the reasons that you're doing it. And then second, how do you actually do it? Well, the key thing that journalists look for is differentiation, right? That's, that's the critical thing. Don't be the same company that they've already written about three weeks ago. Find the journalist that writes in your niche, find someone who's interested about it, and then find a point of difference. That point of difference can manifest itself in so many different ways. It can be that your business case is different. It can be that you've got, literally be as simple as you've got an amazing photo that they want to use, or it can be the individuality of your founder and the way that they talk. But you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself from the pack. And that's really when people start to stand up and listen. Is because you've got something new to say. And there's a reason they call it news is because it's new. And so you've got to find something new to say. And if you can do that well, you can keep it going. You have to do it professionally. So deal with them on their own terms. Get someone who knows what they're doing to help you. Work with somebody who probably knows the journalist, can open a door for you a little bit. That often helps. And don't set your sights too high. Start small. Small coverage Mm -hmm. leads to more coverage. People hear more about you. They want to write more about you. And then then you'll find for a couple of years that people are starting to uh, come to you instead of the other way around.
0: And I love that. (laughs) The last part of every interview, and it's probably my favorite, is this notion of the idea graveyard. And (laughs) the idea graveyard is the notes, you know, the ideas that we write down in our notes app that we might think at one point, are the, you know, the next billion or trillion dollar idea. And then after you sit on it for a day, you (laughs) think you're crazy. Or in other words, maybe it is a great idea, but you just don't have the time to go after it. Maybe it's out of your domain expertise or you just you really Mm -hmm. just don't have the time to execute. A question for you is if you have any what are one of these ideas that are just rotting away in your idea graveyard? <laughs> I, well,
1: I'm giving away my billion, I have two, I have $2 billion ideas in my <laughs> graveyard. Um, and now I hope nobody runs away with these and makes a billion dollars. But the first is, I, I used to work at a supermarket chain, It was a Walmart, um, but it was the UK subsidiary of Walmart. And I pitched kind of uh, Shark Tank style within the business that what we needed to do was everyone, everyone's getting home delivery. But the costs are high and it's hard to get slots. So, you know, the problem is I'm not in my house very often, apart from at the moment because of coronavirus. Normally I'm at work like 10 hours a day. So, but I still want people to be able to deliver to me. But if I order food or things that need preservation, then it can't be delivered when I'm not there. So why don't you build a secure locker on the outside of your house? So I'm like, you know, we have locker sets down at the local shops. And so, but, you know, why don't you just have one on the outside of your house? Because then you can, it can be wired in, it can be chilled, it can be locked, it can be digitally accessible by the, you know, the DHL guy can have a, a number that he pumps in and he leaves his shopping there. And then it's there when you get home and you didn't need to worry about finding a slot or anything. It just gets there. Not only that, but if you make this box then you can sell one for basically every house in the country. So it doesn't work in tower blocks,
0: <laughs> but Wait, I think there Oliver. are. Oliver. <laughs> Oliver. Yeah. This is, this is an amazing idea. <laughs> I <know>. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Because if you think about like you said, if you just look at costs, the reason why many people look at food delivery, while it could be sexy to the consumer, it is in many ways, a terrible business. It's so hard mm-hmm. to operate those profitably. And, if you look at it, because the average ticket size for one of these meals or groceries is pretty low on average, mm-hmm. and then when you look at the cost of shipping, because it becomes heavy, you get a packet with these, you know, freezable things and the cushing. Yeah. If you could if you could have which they're doing already, cars that are designed to transport food, right? They're chilled or whatever, and then the moment you take it out, you put it into a box that is chilled or designed to keep your food cold, your food hot, whatever it is. I mean, and think about grocery. This is your quintessential repeat purchase. So as a consumer, if I'm considering actually buying some unit that remains fixed on my property for a long period of time, there aren't Mm -hmm. many things that I'd be willing to do that for outside of food.
1: Right, right. Or or that really expensive package that was stolen from your doorstep, right?
0: (laughs) Oliver, Yep. telling you it's, man let's do it <laughs> this is this is a good one <laughs> this is a really good one
1: oh man well, the guys of the uh, didn't think so but you know maybe i need to go back and pitch it again
0: <laughs> Why? What, what was their big was there was the is it too resource incentive to build the unit like what was yeah totally no, i think big? it's, it's yeah.
1: practically challenging right so you're like well, yeah. who installs it who owns it how do you make it safe how do you get the digital access like there's this was you know like mm-hmm. eight years ago right so i think technology has moved on a little bit and also you know everyone can think of an example where it doesn't work so you know like a tower block or if you live miles away from somewhere out, i don't know there's there, there seemed mm-hmm. to be at the time at least a, a lot of also i was kind of junior so maybe they just didn't listen so carefully
0: <laughs> yeah i mean you you would think maybe uh, a great starting point would instead of the residential home it's actually the apartment building and mm-hmm. you sell it B2B. They offer it as an amenity to, yeah. you know, the 200, 300 families that live there.
1: Yeah. I um, mean, because I we have this fun. already, right? We just don't have it at people's houses. Yeah. It's certainly in Germany, mm-hmm. in the UK, we have these blocks of Amazon lockers. It's just, you know, get it closer to your home. You know, why do I have to go out somewhere to get it and then come back mm-hmm. and you can power it if it's in your home so it can be cooled and secured.
0: That's so, so interesting. (laughs) All right. Do you have, do you have idea number two as well or?
1: Yeah, well I have this, this is is completely different, but basically certainly in the UK and I, I think the U S do a much better job of this, but it's like, if you have a child or a young adult who wants to be a sports man or woman, and Mm -hmm. they try out at all these, you know, soccer clubs in the UK, particularly, and the soccer clubs are super competitive and, you're like, oh well, you know, if they get in, that's really amazing, and it makes their career, and they, you know, and they can eventually, and I guess it's like the varsity system in the U.S. and you get a college scholarship. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. all well and good, but like, there has to be an opportunity to take all those kids who didn't get a scholarship, right? If I took all the kids that came second and I put them in a school where they focus really hard on academics, I'm like, okay, look, you know, you probably didn't make the grade as a soccer player yet. But look, we're going to train you really hard on academics so you can have a career in the future if that's what you want to do. But I'm going to train you as a footballer too. I believe in you. That's like the school of belief. Those kids you know, who came second, they're going to fight harder than the kids that got into the academy. So, And then, then you can trade them back with all the sports clubs and you can kind of trade them off against one another. Yeah, I think you guys kind of do it in the US a little bit, but we don't do it in the UK. And that, that kind of like the the second chance dream sports school. That's, the, that's idea mm-hmm. too.
0: Oh, I like that one. Yeah, we have <laughs> in, it, it. Maybe a quasi similar. We have like a, a prep academies where, uh, high school that's maybe not ready for D one mm. will take a fifth year, and they'll do both of those things. They'll refine their athletic skills in whatever sport. They'll they'll work on some type of like academic curricula. I I love it. Yeah, monetized. That's the. <laughs> when 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 are we gonna see founder and CEO Oliver? Is, yeah. this, is uh, this coming in, in, you know, 8, 10 years? Is, well, you know, we, need to go- get, we
1: need to get Lilium up and running. So that's 2025 <laughs> and probably the first <laughs> couple of years of operation. And then so 2027, I'll see you
0: there. <laughs> I love it, man. <laughs> Oliver, before we part ways, I just want to roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs? You know, anything you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is is really go look at the film right if none of this made sense and all sounds a bit wacky go watch the film on youtube because it's it's pretty cool to see the aircraft what it does and then please please tell your friends about it because we need we need a lot of people to start to talk about this and it's going to become a reality much more quicker than people think and the conversation in public is going to become quick going to come around quickly so you know the more people who advocate for it who understand it and will champion it then we we love you we welcome you and please go do your job (laughs)
0: Oliver, you're the man. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure.
0: If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at InGoodHands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host Peter Levin. you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A 11. that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.